something the podcast where I answer my own questions usually my own questions and then I pass on the most interesting stuff to you uh so I'm Melissa and I'm Everett and once again today we're joined by special guest Warren to provide us some very well-informed and entertaining color commentary no pressure most mostly entertaining about 10% well-informed yeah okay there's probably 9% more well-informed than a number of people well it's Considering I don't, I do no research before I end up here. You know what? I have to say, I think I'm doing pretty well. Exactly. It's uh, it's more well informed than than me usually. Considering the fact that the no, reason I'm doing no. this topic is because I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. Well, number I don't know three. All of them? I don't know. No, they don't mention the East India Company every time. Anyways, they're talking. Yeah, about I mean the, 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 the Caribbean is a little far away from India, so I don't know if that would come up all that often. It yeah. it. Because they're ruled by the British, it did come up in, like, number three or something. Anyways, it was in one of them, and I was like, you know, I really don't know a lot about them. Sure. At all. To the point where I was surprised to find out that there's, you know, actually other East India companies. There's the British one, and then there's, like, other ones, too. There's not just the one. Mm. So, uh, to be clear, we're going to focus on the British slash English East India Company, but I will mention other East India companies at the end, just to round it out. Okay, good. Um, Yeah. Hate to miss out on any of them. Exactly. So, how would you teach me something? Okay. So, just a quick overview, and then we'll get into kind of the meat of things. Um, So, it was a pretty massive corporation, founded under Queen Elizabeth I, Mm. and they... uh, I'm going to say exploited overseas uh, locations like India, China, Persia, and Indonesia Mm -hmm. uh, for trade purposes and uh, probably became one of the most dominant corporations in history, I would say. Um, I mean, like they conquered half a subcontinent. Yeah. Yeah, which is like, again, a thing I was a little surprised about. I didn't realize so much of the colonization of India was a company and not just the British crown. But anyways... Um, People bitch about McDonald's, but they haven't invaded (laughs) Afghanistan yet. (laughs) Not yet. Exactly. At its peak, uh, they were the largest corporation of their kind. um, And larger than, I don't know, several countries even. Uh, It was the de facto emperor of large portions of India, which we just kind of mentioned. Uh, One of the most productive economies at the world, or in the world, was this area of India. Sure. Um, And... It was kind of trading tea, textiles, spices, kind of spices. We'll get into that. And uh, its London investors were making returns as high as 30%, so they are pretty happy about that. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, as I just said again, when, when their trade business kind of weakened in the late 18th century, they just kind of switched lanes and they focused on colonialism. Okay. And so at one point... This is a cool fact that I found. Uh, they commanded oh, cool a fact. private army of about estimated 260,000 soldiers. Nice. Uh, any guesses on if that was bigger or smaller than Britain's army? Oh, Definitely bigger. I would assume it's bigger, yeah. Definitely bigger. Twice as big wow. as the British army. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, 
I mean, if it was of that size, it wouldn't have had so much trouble with Napoleon. I mean, less trouble with Napoleon. Sure. They, they probably would have still had a lot of trouble with Napoleon. Fair enough, yeah. Troubling guy. <laughs> he was very troubling. So they used that enormous amount of manpower to scare off their competition and coerce the Indian rulers into one-sided contracts that would guarantee them access to everything they wanted, basically. Of course. Uh, and taxation powers over, you know, the Indian peoples. Sounds like um, sound business practice. Yeah. And, again, another thing I didn't know, without the East India Company, there would be no Imperial British Raj in India in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, that whole thing came from a private corporation. So, um, for better or worse, that was like the first multinational corporation, I guess you could say. Yeah. Wow. So, this hmm. story is going to begin in the late 1500s, uh, because all the European powers uh, want a piece of the East Indies. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. I say East Indies, um, we're going to define it because this is how the British Crown defined it as a massive area that extended westward from the Cape of Good Hope. That's Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the southwest tip of South Africa. Yeah. Yep. All the way east to Cape Horn in South America, which is the southernmost tip of Chile. Yeah. Wow, that is a large that's area. That's bigger. So than they're I like, thought. this is the East Indies, and this is what I grant you permission to. To go privateer, basically. So if anyone yeah. told China they're in the East Indies or Japan, they yeah. were though. Hey, Japan, you're the East Indies. I mean, now. according to about... every one of these companies, <laughs> that was part of the East Indies. So, like, even the the west coast of South America, like that, that... Uh, that's what. Well, yeah, I guess that's so. just California. Yeah, you're in I the mean, East I don't, Indies. I don't know how north how north we're going with okay. this, but but um, I mean, theoretically, that's why they could be up in the Caribbean for the pirates of the Caribbean. No. No, the Caribbean is on the other side. I know, but if I were to just draw a straight line up from the tip, <laughs> it'd be close. I don't think that's how that works. They probably just sailed, you know, west from, from Britain to get to the Caribbean. But anyways, Whatever. well, southwest. Um, so the East Indies, very rich in spices, fabrics, luxury goods. All the wealthy Europeans wanted all that stuff. And so initially, because of their... Uh, prowess in in boating sailing seafaring if mm-hmm. you will spain and portugal Uh-oh. had a pretty much a monopoly on the far east trade yeah mm-hmm. um but britain britain wanted in and it seized the ships of the defeated spanish armada in 1588 which paved the way for it to become a, the yeah. next naval power um and at the time it's customary for these companies to be they would f- be funded for just a voyage yeah, yeah, they yeah, you charter a voyage. Right, they liquidate everything upon return of that, and and, and that makes it high risk, right? Of course. Because um, piracy and disease and shipwreck and all those things. Yeah, you could easily just lose your entire I mean, they investment. would also charter pirates. That's a good way to go, too. When when England and Spain were at war with each other, the English crown just threw a bunch of money at English sailors to go steal Spanish shipping. Right, that was what a privateer was. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, um, I also read this interesting, I know that sounds kind of, uh, an economics article that was kind of interesting that, that, that was saying that there's inelastic demand and elastic supply, basically, which means the prices of any one good, like spices, might be incredibly low compared to what you thought it would be when you set out on your voyage. And, Mm -hmm. and so you might, 
lose a bunch of money and not be profitable, even if everything went the way you wanted it to go and there was no disease, piracy, and shipwreck. Right. Um, so, to manage mm. this risk, okay. on the 24th of September, 1599, 80 merchants and adventurers, it says, um, mm. they met at Founders Hall in London, and they all agreed, let's form this big company that just continually... Right. We'll fires. all invest in and, and we'll... Right, exactly. Stabilize the risk, basically. Mm-hmm. So, on the 31st of December, 1600, I love how they're always like, this company was founded in 1600. I'm like, oh, the last day. Is it really? <laughs> Is it <laughs> the really? Last day. <laughs> there is a group of 218 men that called themselves the Governor and Company of Merchants of London Trading to the East Indies. So, they shortened They made that titles way too long yeah. back in the day, like book titles and stuff. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. They got a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth I. And she gave them a monopoly for 15 years over trade to the East. Um, this initial charter didn't make any mention of them holding overseas territory, but it gave them, quote, the right to wage war where necessary. And I feel... <laughs> where necessary. Well, I hmm. feel like it's just crazy that one country can be like, I give you the right to attack anyone else. And the other countries that are being attacked are like, how can you give them that right? That's yeah. not a right you own. The right to attack I don't me? think they cared about <laughs> the other country's on. opinions too much. But that's what I'm saying. That's just not nice. Accurate. I don't yes. think most monarchs at that time were known for being particularly Rude. nice. Rude. <laughs> yes, Virginal, okay. perhaps, but not nice. <laughs> so the merchants put up about 70,000 pounds of their own money. They eventually established a small office on Leadenhall Street in London. Um, and then they off, they set up this new type of business. So this was radically different because this is a joint stock company that could issue tradable shares on the open market to any number of investors. Okay. And this is, um, governed by a president, but also a board, like a board of officers, board of control, they called it. Um, apparently the board meetings were like, crazy like there were hundreds of people at them all everyone was just yelling and just it was it was raucous okay um and the advantage of this was they could raise lots of money yeah by yeah, doing yeah. it this way um so like i said this is a radical idea but it wasn't the world's first chartered joint stock company that honor honor goes to something called the muscovy company which had a monopoly mm. on trade between england and like Russia area? Yes, Russia. Wow. Yeah. Nailed it. Surprising. Nailed yeah. it. Mm. From 1555 until 1698. So, okay. um, tangent time. The Muscovy Company uh, survived as a trading company until the Russian Revolution. Hmm. Since okay. 1917, they operate as a charity working within Russia. Anyways. Oh, a bit of a turn. Back that to, is a little bit of a term, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if they're still working as a charity, like, to this day. Getting sure. information about the last few years out of Russia is not easy. easy? Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Um, so, back to the English East India Company. The first voyage got underway about two months after it got the charter. Uh, the Red Dragon, which is a repurposed pirate ship from the Caribbean. Ooh. Nice. Set sail for Indonesia in February 1601. They traded with the Sultan at... Some place called, I'm going to say it wrong, Ake, Aka. Anyways, they raided a Portuguese ship. They returned with 900 nice. tons of spices, like pepper, cinnamon, cloves. And that voyage earned 300% profit for the shareholders of the company. So they start. were pretty happy. Right. Yeah. Um, but the first expedition of the English East India Company to India was led by one William Hawkins, who landed at Surat 
on 24th of August, 1608. And he goes to Emperor, again, I'm going to say, I'm so sorry, Jahangir, Jahangir's court at Agra, where he was trying to get a trading agreement with the emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the emperor really liked this guy. Um, so he detained him for three years. Oh, yeah. You stay here. I like you. Yeah. Is that what you do with people you like? Apparently. When was the last time you went outside? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been here for, you know, just over three years. So I'm sure pretty soon I'll be able to go back. Well, you better better be willing to pay, though. Because because he gave him a handsome salary and gave him a wife. Oh, okay. Okay. Stay here and you'll be happy, That doesn't sound as bad, then. Yeah, exactly. It says he detained him, but also that he gave him a handsome salary and wife. So, yeah. And then, after those three years, he gave him a license to build a factory. He's like, okay, you can build your factory here. Um, So, in 1612, Thomas Best was sent to Surat from England um, with four ships, surely to help with this whole factory thing. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. uh, they got into a battle with four... Portuguese galleons and 16 barks. I looked it up. A bark is a type of boat. I didn't know that. I was like, what? I mean, I was guessing from the context, but there's a whole bunch of like definitions. A bark is a boat with this type of sail and this type of man, you know, like they all have that definition. Less artillery on board. Yeah. More agile. Yeah. So three of the galleons were grounded, one sunk, Portuguese retreated. uh, And that really impressed the governor of Gujarat. He was mm-hmm. like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to convince the emperor that he should favor the English over the Portuguese from now on. Oof. So that kind of sums... Uh, I, have, I have a question. Did the Portuguese already have Gao, Gao, G-O-A um, at this time? I don't know what Goa? They, Is it Goa? It I, I said it Goa in a, an episode we did a long time ago about something else. Yeah. I don't know what that episode was about. What was that about? I'm not sure, but I, I, don't, I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't know at what time I just frame. know how it's spelled. Yeah. And it's a pretty impressive ship. No, place. What? Oh my... Hmm. <laughs> nice. Okay. I don't know the answer. That's a good question. I also ask questions. I guess that's like 2%. Yeah, there you go. The thing is, is I only had time to look up the English company and then the French thing and the Dutch thing. I didn't have time to go into the Portuguese thing. Yeah, fair enough. Well, Portuguese things are always popping off every now and again. Yeah, I guess so. They, you know, Pope was like, here, you can have this part of South America, which is like, like just Brazil. And he's like, hey, Spain, you can have this part of the Americas, which is like the rest of the Americas. Again, what gives yeah. the Pope the right to be like, Because hey, he's the Pope. Hey, yeah. have these people's house. <laughs> it's yours now. Yeah. God. <laughs> God exactly. gave him oh, yeah. the right. The authority I right forgot there, about yeah. God. <laughs> um, so, so, in 1615... Someone named Thomas Rowe was sent to India as ambassador of King James I, who is now the monarch. Well, not now. He has been for a little while. Mm-hmm. I don't know when he became the monarch. I just remember watching Pocahontas with my daughter, and that song goes in 1607, and then it talks about King James. So I'm like, clearly he was the king by 1607. Um, I don't know. And, and, and Elizabeth was the queen when this first started. So there's a short yeah. time period in which James must have become the king in the early 1600s. I don't know when, though. I guess so. It was um, around then. Okay. So Thomas Rowe was sent with a lot of gifts and flattery and all this stuff for the emperor. So they got a license to trade and establish factories all across the Mughal Empire, starting in Surat, obviously. Um, but Jahangir, the emperor, was not willing to give King James exclusive trading rights. Um, but he did allow them to compete with the traditional traders in the region. Okay. So, good start, I guess. 
Um, and the nice foothold. The yeah. East India Corporation also uh, convinced the oh god, Vijayanagara Empire mm. in the south of India to allow them to open a factory in Madras. For all you Universals, Europa Universals four players, that's the yellow one in southern India. Mm-hmm. Oh, can you say it better than that? No, that's a no, I can't say it. No, I just know what it looks like, and it's yellow. Vijayanagara. Yeah. It's my best guess, okay? Um, So the English then begin to establish trading posts. I say the English shorthand. We're talking about the company, not the crown, okay? Um, Established trading posts up and down the coast of India. Large English communities were established in the three major trading towns, uh, Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay, Mm -hmm. which are not called those things now. No, right. Well, close. Kolkata is, is close. And then Chennai and Mumbai. Yeah. Or yep. now, those places. Um, so over the years, for reasons we'll get into at the very end, the company shifts its attention from spices to fabrics and tea. Yeah. Then they start expanding into the Persian Gulf, China, and and elsewhere in Asia. Um, let me As just let me just say now, which I will get into. This is not by choice. This is this is them being forced out of those markets. Oh, um, okay. Out of the spice market. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm. Um, so the profits were huge, but this was a dangerous venture. Um, so sea voyages to the East Indies were really, really risky. There were a lot of fighting. Yeah. You know, diseases, pirates, you know, all the things I mentioned before. They had to go all the way around like the tip of Africa to get there. Yep. They yeah. Sure did. The Cape of Good Hope. Yeah. I think that I, oh, is that the right one? Or is it the other case? I, I forget names already. Uh, probably. I read it. And then I'll got just it wrong. go with that. Um, so the mortality rate for an employee of the East India Company at this time was around 30%. Ooh. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's it's, and, extreme. And at first, the company didn't have a lot of money to pay its employees. And when your work is this dangerous and you're not getting paid a lot for it, then what's the why? Why would you do it, right? So they needed to provide other incentives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these incentives included allowing their employees to engage in private trading on the side. Sure. Um, so they were able to kind sure. of do that. But outside of that allowed private trading, there is a whole lot of embezzlement, basically, oh, going course. on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, think about jewelry, for example. You could hide that all over yourself and no one would know that you took a bunch of jewelry home. So that was pretty much the incentive and only reason anyone worked for them because otherwise you might yeah. die. You have a real high chance of dying. Yeah, not might, likely. Uh, 30%. That's pretty yeah. likely. That's I don't want likely. to roll that dice. <laughs> you go twice and now it's more than 50%. <laughs> That's not how that works. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so before we keep talking about... Had you got the, hired uh, three times, it'd be 90%. If you win a fourth time, guaranteed dead. Guaranteed dead. <laughs> I think it's like the third in that third, the three point third yeah. time. Then you're definitely dead. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, before we keep talking about what the East India Company was doing in India, I was curious about all those Indian words I read earlier. Sure. So, so you know me. I want to talk about India's political situation at the time. Mm. Um, when the British and the other Europeans arrived in India, of course they had to, like we mentioned, kind of win the favor of the local rulers. And that includes the Mughal Empire, which was very powerful and extended across most, much of India. Um, so, the Mughal Empire. Let's talk about them. They were a Muslim dynasty yep. of Turkic Mongol 
origin. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they rule, like I said, mostly northern India, but but a large a large chunk of India um, from the early 16th to mid 18th century. Um, the dynasty is founded by a Chagatai Turkic prince. I'm learning all these new words named Babur in around 1526. So he was descended from a Turkic conqueror named Timur on his father's side and from Chagatai, the second son of Genghis Khan mm-hmm. on his mother's side. The Mongol ruler, if you didn't know. Oh. <laughs> that Genghis <laughs> that Khan. That one. I mean, really, when you combine Mongols and Turks in that time frame, oh, you get man. pretty good conquerors. Yeah. Clearly. Pretty good conquerors. So the Mughal Empire, the Mughal rule, was known for being very, well, generally, relatively tolerant of all religions in the mm-hmm. region, um, which was good because they were in the minority as Muslim rulers of a place that was majority Hindu. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15% of the area was Muslim. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they were, but because they were so, you know, tolerant, didn't do any, whatever, it really created social stability. So they could get a healthy economy going. Um, so they built an empire making good use of India's natural resources. Uh, they developed its production capacity. And they kind of made India like the center of a very rich Muslim-dominated trade sy- system in that Indian Ocean. Um, so South Asia was important because most of the population farmed food. Sure. Rice, for for example, yes. Um, And Mughal India was like the manufacturing industry. They produced massive amounts of hand-loom textiles. Um, The trade in cotton and silk fabrics made them very, very wealthy as early as the 5th century BCE during the Roman Empire. Okay. I knew. I mean, that's why, like, like when Gandhi was doing his whole India independence thing, he was like, we should go back to the thing that we used to do, which is, like, spinning textiles. So he had a bunch of people spin textiles instead of, I think, like, grow cotton or something, or whatever the the, the British wanted them to do. Sounds like mm. something the British would yeah. want them to do. Yeah, he's basically like, I reject your ability to exploit me. We're going to do the traditional Indian thing. Nice. Okay. I didn't realize that. That's one good thing he did, yes. Um, so I did want to sneak Pliny the Elder in because I just said Roman, Roman Empire, so how would I not? Because he commented on how much Roman gold was being wasted in India because Roman women had a taste for Indian muslin linens and cottons. Hmm. I get it. Pliny right into that You did, yeah. Okay. Surprised at what he said. Pardon me? So what did he say? Oh, just that, that they were wasting, wasting a lot money. Yeah, I don't okay. want to write a whole paragraph about how he complained about their money. <laughs> that, that was what he wrote. Okay. Um, but it wasn't just textiles. Indian trade was, of course, enhanced by nutmeg, mace, cloves, cardamom, cinnamon, coming out of the Spice Islands in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, other than the black pepper, India didn't grow those spices on its own, but it was like the main shipping center for the world. Like, that's yeah. where all the stuff went and then shipped from there. Um, so the Mughals really expanded their territory aggressively, uh, at the time the East India Company was established, they ruled one of what were like the two wealthiest uh, nation states, I don't know, not nation state, I don't know, empires Regions. Yeah, in the world. The only other one that rivaled them was Ming China. Mm, so yeah. the land stretched through most of India at, like, at this point, um, all of what's now Pakistan and Bangladesh, and most of Afghanistan. Yeah, wow, yep. okay. Yeah, so they ruled more than five times 
uh, the population the Ottomans had. So about 100 million people. Uh, and the capitals were apparently just like amazing mega cities. So Agra, which you yeah. might recognize from, you know, that's the place the Taj Mahal is mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Um, they had a population at the time of 700,000. That's crazy. So that dwarfed all the cities of Europe. Uh, the city Lahore was larger than London, Paris, Lisbon, Madrid, and Rome combined. Oh. Um, so at this time, India accounted for about a quarter of global manufacturing. And in contrast, Britain contributed less than 2% of global GDP. But they stole a lot of it. Good at it, yeah. Yeah, they were good at well, stealing that. That's what I'm that. saying. This is the time. <laughs> this is the time when just the East India Company was being founded. So right. we're talking about like 1600. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the East India Company was, at, you know, still operating from the home of its governor, Sir Thomas Smith, and they had permanent staff of six people. Is that like the sixth Thomas that you've said so far? Yeah. I've been was, keeping track. Everyone was named wow. Thomas. All of them. It's like three of the guys that you mentioned got sent were named Thomas. Now this yeah. guy's named Thomas. Everybody's a Thomas. Can we differentiate them? One named T, one named Tom. We don't have Tommy. to. I won't talk about them again. It's okay. okay. Fine. Kings weren't all named Thomas, but but nobles. Businessmen were. Yes, yeah. businessmen were Thomas. Um, but the company did very quickly uh, own 30 tall ships and its own dockyard at Deptford on the Thames. Yeah, hmm. but how many short ships did they have? You know I've already made clear my ignorance about ship names, okay? I had I just, to look I up what a bark was. <laughs> I know. Um, so, the Mughal rulers had a pretty complex bureaucracy. Um, both Hindu rajas and Muslim sultans could become officers of the state called mansabdars. So, mansabdars okay. maintained a cavalry, which was battle-ready, mm-hmm. and they collected taxes on behalf of the empire. I'm sure they also did a lot of embezzlement. Probably. Yeah. But in return, they got land rights and money and status. But mostly the important thing is the land rights. Sure. Yeah. Because here's the issue. In the 18th century, um, like around 1700, the Mughal state kind of reached its limit of territory growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when it ran out of land, it was like running out of money because now they can't award more land Correct. for, you know, to buy the Mansabdar's loyalty. And now the Mansabdars have armies. Yep. Mm-hmm. And no loyalty. Mm. So that's it's a bad, bad combination. It right? is. Um, another problem is that um, there's kind of this decline of religious tolerance when certain rulers take over. Sure. Yeah. Um, Emperor Erangzeb was known as a religious and military zealot. He took power took power in 1658 and greatly destabilized the empire with all his. BS. Sure. <laughs> yes, his shenanigans. Yeah. So, but as late as 1739, they still did rule a vast empire that stretched from Kabul to Madras. And then came a Persian named Nadir Shah, who brought reportedly 150,000 cavalry and defeated a Mughal army of 1.5 million. That's what Sounds it says. It might be exaggerated. Sure, it's but that's ex- exaggerated. <laughs> that's what history says. Um, So three months later, Nadir Shah, having defeated the Mughal empires, returning to Persia, carrying most of the treasure that he could possibly get out of there. Yep, yep. uh, That they had amassed over 200 years, um, including Shah Jahan's magnificent peacock throne. So they plundered the capital? They plundered lots of stuff, yes. Uh, The largest diamond in the world, which was called the Koh-i-Nur, 
and its sister diamond, the Darya Nur, and reportedly 700 elephants, 4,000 camels, and 12,000 horses carrying wagons all laden with gold, say, that's silver, how they got the gold out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. and precious stones worth an estimated 87.5 million pounds in the currency of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. They took 200 years of loot. That's what they did. So they're not doing great, is what I'm saying, the Mughal Empire. Yeah. So we're going to rejoin the East India Company and their story, which, um, hmm, they didn't exactly make the Mughal Empire collapse. As I said, they didn't do that. But they certainly took full advantage and, and definitely helped it along. During its mm-hmm. already present decline or, or beginnings they, of decline. Right. Yeah. So to be clear, the Mughal Empire wasn't officially dissolved until 1857. That has had vastly reduced sure. everything. Yeah. Power and holdings and all that stuff. Um, the destruction of the Mughal power base by Nadir Shah um, really let the English step in and the French, because they were there at the time. Um, well, anywhere England was, France was. Yeah. What you can do, I can. Well, they thought I could do better, but it was do wrong. Frenchly. <laughs> yeah. Um, With baguettes. So both the French and English were training their own sepoys. So that's just like Indian troops mm-hmm. under their control. And militarizing their companies. Yeah. Real real big at this point. So the Nawab of Bengal, that's like a viceroy apparently, um, Siraj Uddula could see that this East Indian company is developing into a colonial power. They're not so much a company anymore. And so he tells them not to refortify Calcutta. And they're like, no, nah, I'm going to do it anyways, because that's what, that's what happens. Yep. Um, so the Nawab captures the fort and factory there. And this is when British captives are held in a small dungeon known as the Black Hole of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, conditions were so awful that 43 of the 64 prisoners died overnight. Wow. That's fast. That is fast. Enter. Black hole. Yeah. I, they said conditions were bad, and I'm like, there's no way conditions being bad kills people overnight. That's just from people killing people. That's not like yeah. a... That's just like a... Oh, no. He what? suffered the, from the condition of being stabbed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, no. He starved in one night. No, that's not it. That's not how that works. Um, so, enter one Robert Clive. Described mm. in many sources as an unstable sociopath. Oh, great. Okay. He was the governor of Bengal at the time. And mm-hmm. he's going to lead a successful relief expedition to recapture Kolkata. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of conflict between the Nawab and the East India Company comes to a head in a place called Plassey. Plassey? No, Plassey. It is about 100 kilometers north of Kolkata. Okay. The year is 1757. And this is how the story goes. Robert Clive had an army of 3,000 men. Right. The Nawab had 50,000 soldiers and 10 war elephants. Oh. But Robert Clive had very smartly bribed the commander-in-chief of the Nawab's army, Mir Jafar, and promises, I'll make you the Nawab of Bengal if the British win the battle. So Mir Jafar withdraws in the heat of battle and, you know, get routed Treachery by from Jafar? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. <laughs> Not a wonder. Did he have a parrot? <laughs> Probably. Named after Shakespeare. Gilbert Gottfried was there, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, at this moment, we're going to say is when the East India Company ceases to be a corporation and becomes uh, the rulers of Bengal. 
Oh, I see. Like, we're talking about governance now. Get some land under their belts. Well, yeah, within a few years of this battle, 250 company clerks backed by about 20,000 locally recruited sepoys are ruling Bengal. Okay. So, in August 1765, the young Mughal... Muggle? Muggle. Mughal is the American way. Now I don't know. I'm confused. Sounds like Final Fantasy. So, we're going (laughs) to stick with the Harry Potter one. Yeah, Yeah, the Emperor Shah Alam, who was exiled from Delhi and defeated by the East India Company troops, was forced into what we would now call uh, an act of involuntary privatization. Yeah. Okay. The British called it a treaty or something. <laughs> yeah. A contract. So he okay. was, Yeah, exactly. He was made to agree to an order dismissing his own Mughal revenue officials in Bengal, Bihar, and Oriza, and replace them with English traders appointed by Robert Clive. Um, and the directors of the East English or East India Company, and I like the way the document describes them. Quote, the high and mighty, the noblest of exalted nobles, the chief of illustrious warriors, our faithful servants, and sincere well-wishers worthy of our royal favors, the English Company. Wow. Mm. A little high on themselves there. Yeah, I wonder if the English wrote that. No. Totally it was the Sultan. (laughs) Or the the Emperor, sorry. (laughs) At least that's what the British said. This doesn't kiss enough ass. I want another draft here to destroy. Yeah. Yeah, so the British dignified this whole process by calling, like I said, the Treaty Treaty of Allahabad. Um, even though, like you've guessed, Clive definitely dictated these terms and and made him sign it. So the document is actually called the Diwani. Um, and after this point, the collecting of Mughal taxes was subcontracted to the East India Corporation. Mm-hmm. Shocking. Um, and they I'm had sure they were very fair and upfront about it. An army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so the London office of the company didn't concern itself with any of this. Um, as long as the trade continued, the board was happy. That's all. They didn't want to know. Yeah. Well, is is know. money coming back home? That's literally okay, what, the, what a board of a company is for. Yeah. Right. Are you making me money? Great. Okay, no questions. <laughs> but unlike in these days, they really couldn't have intervened if they wanted to. Because, you know. That's also true. If yeah. they sent a letter to India, that took three months. And they want to get a letter back that took another three months. So there would be no use for them to try to do anything. So the branch officers in whatever city we're talking about, territory we're talking about, they were the ones that wrote the laws, created local police forces, created the justice systems. Just, they figured Government. it out on their own. Yeah. Um, I did like this analogy uh, that, <laughs> that that would just be like, Hey, what if Exxon Mobil just decided to drill for oil in coastal Mexico and took over a major, major Mexican city using private armed gods? Oh, and then elected a mayor, a judge, an executioner. Yeah. Just like that. A police force. That's normal. Right? Yeah. That's normal. Um, so, company rule was pretty bad news, as you guessed, for the sure. province of Bengal. Um, because, again, it was answerable only to its shareholders. They didn't have any stake in just governance or well-being or any of that They were there to, like, mine economy, a currency out of this land and exploit. Uh, Yeah, that's it. Bring money back. Yeah. I mean, the British were good at exploiting at this point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They had some experience with that. the tax collectors from the company were guilty of what we would call today human rights violations. Uh. Um... (laughs) A senior official yeah, sure, of the, not the only ones. <laughs> no, of course not. Of the old Mughal regime in Bengal wrote in his diaries, "Quote: Indians were tortured to disclose their treasure. Cities, towns, and villages were ransacked. 
um, provinces purloined, and these were the delights and religions of the directors and their servants. Uh, mm. So Bengal's wealth was rapidly just transferred to Britain. Um, the people there were treated like slaves. The market was flooded with inferior British products, which they were forced to buy. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in 1770, Bengal suffered a catastrophic famine. About 1.2 million people died, about a fifth of the population. Wow. And famines weren't uncommon on the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. But the governments and empires that ruled before would try to help the people during famines. And in this case, uh, the policies of the East India Company were exactly the opposite. So they maintained the same levels of taxation and in some cases raised them by 10% during the famines. Didn't offer any famine relief programs like the ones that Mughal rulers would have offered. Um, Rice was stockpiled for company soldiers. Right. Yeah. So all in all, the East India Company was a corporation whose only responsibility was to maximize its profits. Yeah. Um, but like more recent mega corporations, they were both hugely powerful and also very vulnerable to economic uncertainty somehow, because only seven years after this Diwani agreement, mm-hmm. when at that point the company's share price had doubled overnight, yeah, you know, oh, because nice. they acquired the wealth of all the treasury of Bengal. I mean, overnight or that helps. three months later, once word got back to England. Exactly. The, uh, what's called <laughs> the East India later. bubble yeah. burst. Okay. Oh. Uh, because, you know, the famine and the plundering led to, oh, a huge shortfall in expected land revenues. Uh, there's also this thing that was going on. I mean, there's also so much stealing you can do before you've stolen everything. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. But yes, there was also this thing going on in which they lost their tea sales to America. Because, as you may know or not know, it was East India Company tea that was thrown overboard. During the Boston mm. Tea Party shenanigans, you know, mm. the no taxation without representation jazz. Yep. Um, so the East India Company was left with debts of 1.5 million pounds and a bill of 1 million pounds unpaid tax owed to the crown. And this is their the money of the time, not nowadays money. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's bad. So they were supposed to it's be paying, <laughs> they were supposed to be paying 40,000 pounds a year to the government to maintain their monopoly. So that's um, like 48 million pounds these these days. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but they had been unable to do that ever since 1768. And when that became public, that knowledge that they were not paying their bills, 30 banks collapsed across Europe like dominoes. And really? Everything was bad. Let's oh, just say wow. that. Yeah, okay. Everything was, was bad. And they had to ask for a massive government bailout. Oh, oh I've never heard of one of those before. Yeah, I was going to say that. I sounds thought I alluded weird. to it when I had that clever title about just like our current mega corporations. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so that was, good. That, was good. Fail. that was good foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Uh, well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. On 15th July, 1772, the directors of the East India Company applied to the Bank of England for a loan of 400,000 pounds. Two weeks later, they were like, hey, can we actually have 300,000 more pounds? Um, mm-hmm. But the bank's like, I literally can't raise that much money. I can give you 200,000. Um, then in August, the directors told the government, no, actually, can you give us 1 million more pounds? <laughs> so 
So it was. Okay. In 1773, the company was saved by history's first bailout. Well, mega bailout from the government. Woohoo. Woo. Lord North, who was the prime minister, decided that the money should come with strings, which I think is fair. Yeah, yeah. it seems yeah. fair. Yeah. So they passed the Regulating Act to gain some management over this company. Mm-hmm. Um, and the British government, I guess, had finally stopped turning a blind eye to what was happening on the Indian um, subcontinent. They... Uh, they were using like half an eye, maybe, at this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Half a lazy eye at that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so Robert Clive is is being hounded by, we'll say, envious parliamentary colleagues and called out for his corruption. Uh, it became well known that a large portion of the loot of Bengal went directly into his pockets. Mm-hmm. He returned to Britain with a personal fortune, which at the time was valued at £234,000. That made him the richest self-made man in all Europe. Oh, nice. Um, to be fair, that's only like 10% of what he transferred to the company treasury. Um, so I was trying to look this up and it was confusing me, but we're talking like, again, like 50 million, I don't know, just like a crazy amount of money in today's, yeah. just from just from this one expedition to Bengal. Little Bobby Clive. Yeah. So, um, not to be vulgar, but this didn't sit well with him, all the hounding from his call. Anyways, he commits suicide in 1774, Mm. and they just kind of buried him in secret at night in an unmarked vault in a Shropshire village of Morton, say. Really? And then, like, recently, some workers. Is that like where he was from? No. Oh. Just secret, small village. I don't know. There's Seems like, random. in the last, you know, few decades, some workers like found his bones and then just kind of, everyone's like, should we do something with these? And they're like, nah. So they put like a little <laughs> plaque up, but like they didn't move them anywhere. And they're just like, no, we're just not going <laughs> to. No, uh, okay. Screw that Great. guy. Um, yeah. So <laughs> the regulating act though, wasn't great. It had a lot of defects and a lot of holes and a lot of loopholes. It just, it wasn't good. So they needed another act to rectify that. Uh, in 1784, the British Parliament passed the India Act. At this right. time, the Prime Minister was William Pitt. It was William Pitt's India Act. Uh, so Elder that, or younger? Oh, I don't know. Good question. Okay. It's 1784. I don't, all I, know. I don't know that. I just know that there was I didn't was even know that there was two. <laughs> well, at one point, yeah. he was younger, and then he got older. Yeah. So, <laughs> it just depends on, you know, what... I'm going to guess it's the Elder. <laughs> okay. I'm going to guess. All right. It's better than nothing. So, that set up a six-member board of control um, and a court of directors for, like, the financial side of things. Um, And now the British government was formally included in ruling over the East India Company's land holdings in India. That's Mm -hmm. when this kind of officially happened. Um, Then on the 13th of February, 1788, Parliament held an impeachment hearing for looting and corruption um, for Clive's successor. The, the next government. Well, you get impeached for that. I of, thought I thought that was the standard operating procedure. Yeah, really. Well, like I said, they they, they made a show of it. Warren Hastings, by the way. Oh, uh, nice. There's a Warren, not a Thomas. Um, so they put him on. They, well, they, we're like a few hundred years ahead, so yeah. tastes change. Yeah. So they, yeah, they put him on trial. Um, oh no, they didn't. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was an impeachment hearing, but it never got to trial. Okay. This was the nearest mm-hmm. they got to ever putting someone from the company on trial. Um. Not that it was the first time they'd investigated, just the first time they tried to do something about it. 
There was apparently an investigation in 1693 by Parliament that discovered that the East India Company was spending quite large amount of money lobbying ministers and MPs to, again, turn their blind eyes to things. But yeah, they've never really did anything. That was the impeachment hearing that didn't lead to anything was the the closest they got. Well, I'm sure probably the only thing that came of that was that some of the people who thought they should have been getting bribed and weren't. Yeah, we're able to get bribes. Yeah, they're yeah, like, exactly. hey, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're handing out bribes. Yeah, my, my, my hands out too. Yeah. Um, so this time the company was still expanding its holdings, and it reached its largest size in the early 1800s. So by 1803, they kind of their reach extended as far north as the Mughal capital of Delhi, and almost all of India south of that city was then, you know, ruled by basically a boardroom in London, mm. which. At its height, at this time, they only had 35 permanent employees that had office. Really? Yes. They only ever had 35 permanent mm-hmm. employees. Oh, I guess they needed most of them in India, where the actual yeah. thing was that they were I don't know. They just kept dying. Maybe that's why they're not permanent employees. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so despite this India Act, um, the EIC argued successfully somehow that the Diwani was the legal property of the company and not the crown even though the government had spent this massive sum on not only the bailouts, but then on naval and military operations to protect these yeah. Indian acquisitions. Um, I think you'll you'll not be surprised that the reason for this was, again, some bribery. Uh, mm-hmm. The MPs who voted that it should stay in the company's hands were not exactly neutral. Nearly, I mean, it wasn't even corruption. They very obviously publicly held company stock. Nearly a quarter of these MPs held company stock. And the stock... Not only a quarter. Uh, apparently. Hmm. And the stock would have plummeted in value if the crown took over. Um, So, for the same reason, all of a sudden, British foreign policy was like, well, we need to protect this company from foreign competition because my money. Yeah. 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 As you do. Um, Which explains why the British government is then so willing to intercede on the company's behalf in China. So now we're going to talk about China. Cool. I like Uh, this in China. If you know anything about Britain, it won't surprise you to hear one of their most prized trades good, trade goods was tea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did mention the tea a little earlier. You did. Yeah. Um, the catch here was they got the tea from China and the Chinese government didn't want anything the company usually used for trading. Yeah. They were like, we've got our own fabric. What are you talking about? We don't need your fabric. We've got our beautiful silk. We've got, we've got all we need. We've got lots of jewels. We've got spices. What do you, we don't need any of this. We just want silver. It's the only thing we want from you. And if you don't have silver, we're not giving you our tea. Mm. But silver was really hard to come by in England. They didn't have a lot of silver. So instead, they traded opium for tea uh, on China's black market. Mm-hmm. Um, so the English East India Company grew the opium in India, largely in Bengal. And by 1797, they were selling about 4,000 chests of opium to private merchants a year. And the chest is like 77 kilograms of opium, apparently. So that's in 1797. That's a lot of opium. By 1838, they were selling 40,000 chests a year. Wow. Yeah. That is a f*** out of opium. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't have an explicit rating on on, a, on, on our podcast, so so we, we can't swear. Oh. I'm so sorry. Never believe that. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> In earlier centuries, opium was uh, an aesthetic. It was uh, not like a recreational drug yet. 
I mean, obviously, I'm sure some people... They'll use it for, like, coughs and stuff, didn't they? Um, yeah, but I, I think you'll find a lot of old-timey medicine people just say, ah, oh, I need this alcohol for my medical problem. But like, yeah, you know what true. I mean? Like, yeah. I used it for this, but that's Cocaine. not why they used it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, but once all these trading companies flooded China with opium... Then the practice of smoking it recreational, recreationally really, really increased. And as you might know, it is very addictive. Mm-hmm. So um, I found a lot of estimates for what percentage of China was having problems with addiction. And the ranges are all over the place. So a middle-of-the-road estimate is that at one point we've got 27% of Chinese male population is addicted to opium. Well, Which really messes up well, your whole the road one. country. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that was. There's one that said 45% of male. And I was like, wow, that would be crazy. But so what we've got is we've got tens and tens of millions of, of, and the emperors of China are just like really going crazy, like how to stop this problem because yeah. it's a moral outrage and it's destroying our economy and mm-hmm. all these other things. So the emperor's, issued edicts making opium illegal in 1729 and 1799 and 1814 and 1831. And it's just like, didn't, didn't work because there were officials in China being bribed to let it in anyways. There were, you know, yeah, it's yeah. the money, right? Follow yeah. the money. And it wasn't just the British. Um, I'll tell you later, the Dutch didn't help, but some American merchants entered the trade by smuggling opium from Turkey into China, including Warren Delano Jr., the grandfather of one Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Oh, nice. And Francis Blackwell Forbes. Oh, Forbes. Add yeah. the list. Yeah. So in American uh, history, this is sometimes referred Top to 10 as... opium. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Places to smoke opium. Yeah. yeah. The old China trade is trading in opium. That's what American history kind of... Huh. The, the name they got. Anyways. So by 1833, um, the Americans are trading maybe 30,000 chests a year. Wow. That's yeah. a lot, too. Yeah, yeah. So they are sending their opium to warehouses in Canton, which is like a free trade port. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's sold to Chinese smugglers. So in 1839, the emperor is like, enough is enough. And he issues an edict ordering the seizure of all the opium in Canton. Mm-hmm. British traders alone lost an estimated, I don't know why it's estimated when it's so exact, 20,283 <laughs> chests of opium with no compensation from the Chinese. How dare they? How dare they? Right. Um, so just to com- just to compare here, annual imports of opium into England were less than three hundred chests a year. Really? Yes. Oh well, it's bad. That's and uh, and just to to moralize for a second, there was demonizing of the Chinese in America for being like yeah. and Britain for being like these wastrel drug addicts when they were the ones. Anyways, they were the pushers. Okay. So the British response is to a check, the Chinese coast, yeah. So a small skirmish first occurred between British and Chinese warships in the Kowloon Estuary on the 4th of September, 1839. About a year later, the British government was like, okay, we're just going to send the military. We want reparations. Give yep. us money for all those drugs. Um, and we, works and we want you to let us keep trading as much as we want because we want our tea. So the war... Was this the first opium war? This is the first opium war. This is what happens. Uh, It lasted about two years, and it was concluded by the Treaty of Nanking in 1842. And this is how the British got Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And surrounding smaller islands as well. 
Um, other treaty uh, conditions were there's five cities were going to be treaty ports that were open to Western traders. Shanghai, Canton, Ningbo, Fuzhou, and Xiamen. Xiamen? Yeah, okay. It also said that China had to pay $21 million to Britain as reparations for the destroyed opium. Mm-hmm. Um, another treaty the following year gave Britain most favored nation status. Which basically said they could do whatever they wanted in China. <laughs> They're special. Uh, they were exempt yeah. from Chinese law. Uh, oh wow! And FYI, if you didn't know, the British diplomatic then, community. Yeah, the British then kept Hong Kong until 1997. They did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not that long ago. No, that's crazy. It's in our lifetimes. Yeah. Um. Then there was another opium war. There was a second opium war, which Britain and France worked together. Against China. Oh, cooperation. They did Mm -hmm. sometimes when they really wanted the same thing, I guess. So that war lasted from 1856 to 1860, and it resulted in the Treaty of Tianjin. And the Chinese government agreed to pay, you know, war reparations for all the second, the whole Second Opium War. They'll pay for all that. They opened a second group of 10 more ports to European commerce. Probably drugs. Drugs. Yeah, Um, yeah. They promised to legalize the opium trade in China, grant foreign traders and missionaries rights to travel wherever they want within China. You know, just, just, they were bent over. They, yeah, yeah. They had a bad time. They did. Um, but, p- thankfully, apparently, because of all the stuff they've been doing, they're on it, the East India Company's on its last legs now. Um, by the mid-19th century, Parliament was not happy with them. Uh, and someone named Adam Smith is going to be making all these free market ar- market arguments, and Parliament's like, you know, it's a this monopoly thing. Maybe maybe he's right. Maybe we should enforce a monopoly. Maybe we should let there be a free market, Adam Smith. Um, <laughs> Get them invisible hands doing some work. Exactly. And then in 1857, the East India Company's own army revolts. Ooh. Um, yeah. So it's usually a bad sign. Yeah. The first thing that happened is Sepoys in a town called Meerut mutinied against the British officers, and then a full-scale rebellion broke out across the country. Eight hundred thousand Indians and six thousand British died in the conflict, and the revolt was, let's say, savagely suppressed by the East India Company Classic in what has been called one of the most brutal episodes of colonial history. Yep. Bad news bears. So, even though all that stuff sounds really, I don't know, morally outrageous Fun, to light, me. light, fluffy, yeah. pleasant. Um, that's really not why the Parliament killed the East India Company. It was like, oh, we could actually make more money trading with different partners on stronger economic footing that aren't captive patrons of our, you know, colonial corporate state. So, it wasn't like they were morally outraged. They're like, well. No, we can make more money somewhere money. else. Yeah, it had to be. So That's the British the money is money is the only reason. So the British government essentially nationalizes the East India Company, liquidates them. They just absorb the soldiers into their own army, and the Crown decide to just keep India. Though, like they'll just yeah. run the administration there, but they'll keep India. Well, so, they also made Victoria the Empress of India. I was just kidding. Yeah, mm-hmm. my next sentence says from 1858. Then Queen Victoria ruled the Indian subcontinent. Exactly, you nailed it. Pat, which is funny that because. Thing. You know why they called her the Empress of India, not like the Queen of India or something? Because they tried to sound more Indian. No, because they wanted they wanted to give her like an Empress title. Because like 
by this point, Napoleon was like, I'm the emperor of the French. Right. And, like, Alexander was like, I'm the emperor of the Russians. And the British were feeling a little insecure. But you couldn't be an empire of England? That was weird. Why? They certainly were. Because it's, like, not tradition, and, like, it implies, you know, by this point, the monarchy had become not quite all symbol, but, like, a lot of symbol. And a lot less actually doing governing. Yeah. And if you were to be like, I'm an emperor, it implies a lot more, uh, I'm in the middle of stuff and doing things. Hmm. So she couldn't be an empress of England, but she could be an empress of India. Sure. So that's why they called her that. Very fun. Probably. People are silly. That's (laughs) silly. Fair enough. So here's some random facts I found that I enjoyed. Um, One of the very first Indian words to enter the English language is a Hindustani slang for plunder. Booty. Of course. Because of all of this. Okay. Oh, I was going to ask if you could guess. It's not booty. Mm. Do you have any other guesses? Uh Uh-huh. Raiding, pillaging, plunder, seizing. What else? For the the plunder itself, not the verb. A noun. A noun for plunder. Cash. Yeah, I don't know. What is it? Loot. The word loot. loot. So according to Oxford English Dictionary... I mean, looting is, is a verb, though. It also is. But in this case, it's a noun. The yes, word loot. Not looting. Not yeah. too... Anyways. It was rarely heard outside the plains of North India until the late 18th century, and suddenly it became a common term across Britain. Um, so that was reading about this very interesting castle in Wales called Powys Castle. I'm not going to try to say this name. It's ridiculous. I'll show you, though, after the podcast, and we can all have fun trying to say it, because it's, it's going to be real wrong. But the last, Welsh. the last hereditary Welsh prince built Powys Castle in the 13th century. Yeah. Be- his estate, that, that was his reward for letting the English take Wales, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and its most spectacular treasures now actually are from India. So... There are more Mughal artifacts, like like from this time period of India. There are more Mughal artifacts in Powys Castle than are on display at any one place in India, even the National Museum in Delhi. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, Random Welsh castle. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, Good for you, Wales. So, well, I don't know. Maybe you should give it back to India. Anyways, um, but in an interesting piece of, uh, I don't want to say karma, symmetry, maybe? The current owner of Powys Castle is married to a Bengali woman. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, just fun fact. Okay. So, I also thought it was interesting that even though the East India Company governed like 60 million people in India, like I said, they didn't have very many employees, they never had a bigger office than that Leadenhall Street building that was five windows wide. That was, that was they ruled India. And the site now is under the Lloyd's Building in London. Oh, okay. That's where it was. Cool. I don't know where that is. I don't know, but I'm sure people that have I mean, been there... I mean, sounded like you knew where it is. Do you know where that is? I've seen it. Oh, when I've you went there? there? Okay, yeah. I don't know if I've actually seen it. I've been I've, near it, at least. I have heard okay, of Lloyd enough. a lot, so yeah. that's why I was like, that's cool. I've heard of that place. Lloyd's of London. Yeah. yeah. Um, the oh, East yeah. India Company yeah. built most of the London Docklands. Really? Um, yeah, makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. The annual expenditure of the East India Company amounted to a quarter of the total spending of the British government every year. Wow. Okay. And the name of the East India Company lived on after 1858 as a small tea business. 
But more recently, it was bought by Indian businessman Sanjeev Mehta and transformed into a luxury brand that sells tea, chocolates, and pure gold replicas of the East India Company coins that cost like 600 pounds. Hmm. Um, but okay. in a fun fact, again, I think this is cool. They are a member of the Ethical Tea Partnership. Oh. So they probably don't Good. addict people to opium to sell their tea. Yeah. They may not have a particularly strong tie Unlike to that Nestle. part of Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Freaking Nestle. Nestle. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get sued or anything. No one listens to this podcast, so we won't. But they do a lot of bad things, so I'm just going to say they probably push drugs, oh, too. Nestle? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terrible, sure. so. Woohoo! Um, I promised I was going to talk about other East India companies. So let's end end off on, on that note. Sure. Other ones. We're going to start with the Dutch East India Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to do the greatest hits. We don't have time for a you know full play-by-play here. Sure. Um, they are known as the VOC because of Dutch words that I... Sure. Oh. Dutch is so funny to look at. Like, no they're offense in, to people that are Dutch. Oost Indische Compagnie. I, I can't do it. I can't. It's, I'm so bad. I'm so sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. Okay. They were founded two years after the British company, 1602. It was also a joint stock company, but they raised a lot more money than the British one. So they were able to kind of take control of those really lucrative spice islands of Java. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1619, King James I and the Netherlands States General... Uh, came to a treaty, basically. The Treaty of Defense in London in 1619. Oh, I said that you're all right. That's okay. And so they kind of started to cooperate, the British and Dutch companies in the East Indies. But it ended really rather poorly in 1623 with a notorious incident known as the Amboina Massacre. Oh, great. So there was allegedly a whole array of tortures used against men accused of being treasonous, and spying and trying to bring down the Dutch. And the English and Dutch mm-hmm. are very much at odds about these tortures. Of course. I think the Dutch maintain it was just waterboarding and the English maintain it was a lot more than that and a lot of more terrible things. Hmm. Um, a little either, light waterboarding? Come yeah, on. Reasonable. Either way. Either way, 10 Englishmen of the English East India Corporation and nine Japanese and one Portuguese working for the Dutch one were all convicted of conspiracy or treason basically against the Dutch government. And they were beheaded. Um, the head of the English captain was impaled on a pole for everyone to see. And that As really you know. ended any hope of the Anglo-Dutch cooperation in the area. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's when the Dutch really took control of the Indies part, Indonesia area. And yeah. that's why the English could not trade spices anymore. Right. <laughs> so, like I said, not by choice. Mm-hmm. This did create some outrage in Europe and some diplomatic crises between the European powers, but um, the English kind of quietly withdrew. Well, there was like a couple Anglo-Dutch wars in the 17th and 18th centuries, I think. Well, this might Probably didn't help not have helped. No. no, not at all. Um, so yeah, basically the, the English were forced over to India to focus on the textiles and stuff. Um, so during the 17th century, the Dutch established trading posts in what was called Jayakarta, the Dutch, of course, didn't really want that town name because they are going to do their own thing as the colonizers did, yeah, and they not named Dutch it. Enough. They named it Batavia, and uh, oh. you might know it now as Jakarta. Hmm. Okay, yeah, okay, I do know it as Jakarta. Batavia, Batavia. Yeah, that's how. That's how. Something like that. They also established trading posts in South Africa, Persia, Sri Lanka, and India, and by 1669. 
they were the richest private company the world had ever seen. Oh. Um, so they were actually more rich and powerful than the English one. They just didn't last as long. So the overall profits peaked in the 1670s and then it kind of slowly declined. They were forced to leave Formosa in 1663. That's Taiwan. I was like, that's unfamiliar. That's Taiwan. Um, And then as a result, they couldn't trade Chinese silk for Japanese gold. And they had been using that Japanese gold to acquire Asian goods. Um, So speaking of Formosa, another fun fact, they, the Dutch company was the one that established the opium trade in China in the 1600s, but they were pushed out by the British. Hmm. Snap. Yeah. That's what you get for taking our spice trade. Yeah, (laughs) really. We're going to take your drug trade. Yeah. Later. So the Dutch tried to focus on the Bengal silk market, but the profits weren't nearly as high. And then from 1675 to 1683, the Dutch and British companies got into a price war. And the price war nearly bankrupted both companies. I was going to say, yeah. As often Competition to the, or like race to the bottom. Yes. So the VOC gets a bit of a boost in 1685 when it forced the British competition out of their last remaining outpost in Java, but that didn't really come close to repairing the damage done by the Japanese when they decided to limit all of the export of gold and silver at this time. Mm-hmm. That was the Dutch's source of, like, key source of precious metals. And then there was a big rebellion in Java. Um, from 1741 to 1743, they massacred 10,000 local Chinese in Batavia. Uh, the French were pushing back. The Danes showed up in the late 17th century to trouble the Dutch nice. uh, and, and put their Indian holdings at risk. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the Dutch strongholds along the Malabar coast, so like the southwestern coast of uh, India, um, and the Persian Gulf were lost in the 18th century after the British uh, greatly decimated their East Asian Navy during the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War. There you go. From 1780 to 1784. Fourth. There's a lot of Anglo-Dutch wars. Yeah, that was more um, than I thought. Yeah. So in 1799, the VOC is formally dissolved. The territories and assets were taken over by the Dutch government. Makes sense. And yeah. that was the end of them. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, there was also the French East Indies... Com- well, okay. Least for sure, actually, unfortunately okay. for them. Out of these three. <laughs> last and least. Last and least. Yep. Um, so in 1604, the French get in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, when King Henry IV authorized the establishment of the Compagnie de Indie Orientalis, you know, East India Company, the French one. Yep. Very creative in naming. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Granted a 15-year monopoly on French trade with the East Indias. But this wasn't like the official East India Company of France that we're going to talk about because this wasn't a joint stock company. This was funded by the French Crown. Okay. Oh. So it was a crown. This was asset a precursor then. to the firm that would be founded sixty years later. Okay. With the same name. <laughs> yeah. So between the sixteen thirties and the early sixteen sixties, the French were doing some things. Much smaller scale, but they, they enjoyed they some coming. success. It's like, yay! Some success. They mostly <laughs> stuck around the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and kind of the northwestern coast of the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1664, the French East India Company, in the French it's Compagnie Française pour le commerce de Indie Orientales. Anyways, I'm going to call them the CIO because that's too long of a name. Okay. They were Pretty a joint cool. stock company founded uh, to compete with the English and Dutch ones. Mm-hmm. They were planned by Jean-Baptiste Colbert, finance minister minister to King Louis XIV. Right. So King Colbert. Louis... 
<laughs> Colbert. <laughs> yes. So he, King Louis charters them on the 1st of September, 1664. And the initial capital, um, was 50 million livres. I don't really know what that is in pounds or anything. Okay. I didn't look that up. They divide into Fair shares enough. that cost a thousand livres each. And King Louis actually funded the first three million livres of investment himself, um, against which the losses of the first 10 years were going to be charged. Oh. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the initial stock offering really quickly sold out because, you know, I mean, all courts and all royal courts did this, right? Yeah. But French, I feel like, were especially like, oh my God, the king did something, we have to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, totally. oh, my God. Yeah. So all the courtiers... Well, especially Louis XIV. Yeah. Right? All the courtiers are like, oh, my God. People love that guy. Louis did this thing. We better invest, like we better buy this thing. Oh, my God. Um, so the CIO is granted a 50-year monopoly on French trade in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, wow. which they defined as stretching all the way from Cape of Good Hope to the Straits of Magellan. Um, okay. King Louis also granted the company a concession in perpetuity for the island of Madagascar, as well as any other territory it could conquer. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and the company had had better resources, a lot better banking than the previous version of the company. Um, so they go in 1668 and establish the first French factory in Surat, which I feel like the English also did. That was the first place they went. Why would you go to the exact same place? Uh, well, how do you get compete? To? Yeah, in the French French was there. there. Yeah. yeah, maybe they made some infrastructure the French could yeah. take advantage of. In 1674, Pondicherry becomes the center of French India, which you might have heard of. Yep, I've heard of that. Yes. So, from the beginning, the French were constantly in conflict with the Dutch and the English. Um, the VOC drove them out of India completely in 1693, but they returned in 1699, and then for the next 100 years, they used Pondicherry as the Indian capital of France, basically. Yeah. Um, since the 1680s, the company, though, and let's face it, the French crown was struggling with hmm. insolvency, yeah. drowning in debt. We can just mm-hmm. say that. Specifically, the issue for the French right now was the War of Spanish Succession. Oh, yes. yes. They used all their money. It was, a, it was a pretty big war. They had a lot to gain from that war, so uh, they yeah. kind of went all in. But then they lost yeah, well, okay. you know, that's how France goes. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1716, Scottish financier John Law arrives at the French royal court. And um, he is just a whole story in himself. Like, there's so much to this guy. And, mm-hmm. and like, I was kind of saying before we started recording, he's so interesting, but I don't have time for a whole backstory. Let it just be said that he was a dandy, which apparently means like a party bro. Yeah. But he was good with money. And gambling, and killed someone in a duel, then was sentenced to death, then escaped jail, and yeah. then the French were like, sure, run our economy. Um, <laughs> Good fat boy things. Yeah. So, Good resume for it. So he approaches the crown with this scheme to construct a national bank and introduce paper currency and shift France's economy to a credit economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so under his direction in 1719, the CIO is merged with other French trading companies to form the Compagnie Perpetuelle des Indies. And, um, then, then they started with slaves. Mm. So they were involved in Easy importing money. slaves to Louisiana as that colony operated on a plantation yeah. basis. Yeah. French Louisiana at that, right? Was there another type? I don't know. 
<laughs> I was just putting two and two together. <laughs> yeah, yes, it was the French colony in yeah. the America. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so the French economy just completely crashes drastically in 1721 due to some of Law's other ventures. Um, Mississippi bubble, if you want to look that up. It was bad. Anyways, mm. uh, following this... The, the company again starts trading and settling in India on its own, like they separated out from this perpetual company um, and resumed their independence in, in 1723. Okay. Um, but they really failed again when <laughs> one Robert Clive arrives in India in 1744. You might remember him. He takes possession of Bengal and smashes the French forces Uh at this point, they're pretty much a non-factor in India, except for Pondicherry and a place called Chandernagor, which remained under French control until 1954, both those places. Really? But that's pretty much all they had. 1954? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty late. It, it, it yeah. Is. Exactly. Um, as I said, France's main rivalry came from the British, as is the case in everything most of their history <laughs> yeah. um like as a result of their constant wars in europe like i said the succession Spanish succession austrian succession seven oh. years war the british were able to control french territories in india with the treaty of paris in 1763 they got those territories back uh but the companies just again broke and in 1769 king louis the 15th issues an edict that requires the company to transfer to the state all of its property, all of its assets and rights, which is about 30 million livres, which that kind of sucks. They started mm. with 15 million and <laughs> 30 million. Um, so the king agrees to pay all the debts and obligations of the company. But in the end, holders of company stock and notes received only about 15% of their face value really? uh, of what they got. So that's not great. Then... They reconstituted the company in 1785. Again. I, hmm. I don't know So like the fourth time? Yeah. And they issued 40,000 shares of stock, priced again at 1,000 livres each. It was given a monopoly on all trade with countries beyond the Cape of Good Hope for seven years. But it did not last seven years because something happened in 1790. The French Revolution. Oh, yeah, I was going to okay. say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and the monopoly was then abolished by the new French Assembly, which enthusiastically declared... That the lucrative Far Eastern trade would henceforth be thrown open to all Frenchmen. Yay. Yay. And so that was the end of that. <laughs> and then Robespierre just guillotined a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. Or, As he do. or first. I think maybe he did that before the French Assembly. I don't know. I don't know which came first, but he did it a lot. So. Well, the Assembly came first, and then Robespierre took oh, control. Oh, and then. Oh, okay. And then okay. the Reign of Terror happened. Oh. I thought that the Assembly was what happened after... They guillotined a bunch of people and tried to... Well, they work. definitely guillotined a bunch of people first. Oh, okay. And then Robespierre took control oh. and guillotined even more people. Yeah. Okay, clearly yeah. I need to learn more about the French Revolution. That might have to be an Very episode. Very true. One. Yeah, it'd be a good episode. Well, that's, uh, that's all I got, though. That's all I okay. got about all these East India companies and all this crazy colonization of India. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this. I do want to remind you we have an email address... It is teach me something for the number, not the word, at gmail.com. I welcome all topic suggestions and comments and critiques as long as you're nice. <laughs> I want to thank our special guest, Warren, for joining us again. Thank you for having hope, me. Hope Always to, a pleasure. Hope to have you back soon. I'll be, I'll be there. 
Mm-hmm. I do hope to have another episode out in exactly two weeks' time, like I usually do, but the whole broken hand can't type with more than one hand at a time is a little slow. So if I am a week late, that is the reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems reasonable. All right. Once again, thank you so much. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.